Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Great. Thanks, uh, Sue, very much. Sue's a designated person for safeguarding. If you ever think you've got any concerns at all, she's the person uh, to speak to amongst others. Liam is coming to the end of his year as an intern uh, with us, together with Henry and Andrea. We're taking them out for the day tomorrow uh, to mark the end of their internship and to make sure that the year's experience is something that they will never, ever forget. Pray for them. But they will be back next Sunday, when we'll share a little bit about uh, uh, the year that they've had, or they'll share a little bit about the year that they've had, and uh, we've all had uh, together. Um, my name is Simon. If you don't know, I'm one of the ministers here, and uh, it's my job to preach on Mark chapter 16, as we come to the end of this uh, series. Um, I'm really excited about the summer. You know, sometimes people groan about the summer, especially at, at Burlington. You'll know that we are super committed in the summer to giving people a, a rest as much as we possibly can. So we become quite low-key in terms of uh, the programs that we uh, that we run. And uh, in recent years, particularly last year, we did a number of things, including a devotional and activities and so on, just to try and help keep us connected and to help us use the summertime uh, intentionally. So it might be different, but different can be good, and to uh, use it wisely. And uh, we've been uh, wondering and pontificating about what that should look like for uh, this summer. And uh, this last week, you'll be pleased to know that we had one of those... Uh, I was going to say eureka moments. I don't know about you. Do you get those moments sometimes when you've been wrestling with something and suddenly you go, yes, that's it. That's what God's saying. That's the right thing uh, to do for us. Sometimes I get that with, uh, in relation to a sermon series, wondering what on earth to do next. And then suddenly, maybe after lots of, uh, of heartache and perspiration, perhaps, or sometimes just out of the blue, that's it. That's what we, uh, that's what we should be digging into. So we've got that sense about this coming sun, summer. So look out for all the details about that as it unfolds over these coming weeks. But that's a month away. Uh, here on a Sunday, we've got some significant moments before we get there. Next Sunday, because we'll have finished Mark, uh, I've asked Sarah, our youth team leader, if she will lead our thoughts around some of the work that she's been doing uh, uh, with the whole issue of pornography, not just with our young people, but pornography is an issue that affects the whole of the church in the same way that it affects the whole of society. One of the uh, disappointing things about church life is that statistically it's as much a problem for the church as it is for society as a whole. It's an acute problem for our young people, as we know, and uh, she's been running some workshops and so on. You will have seen those advertised, and we're going to bring some of that uh, conversation into this forum because it matters for all of us. Addiction is a massive issue in the church. Sexuality is a massive issue in the church. Uh, and when those two things come together, uh, uh, it's, it's really significant for us. So uh, an important time uh, next Sunday. Then the week after that, by way of, uh, of uh, advertising the next few Sundays, the week after that, I will be preaching the sermon that I've been asked, in fact, that I've been paid to preach on. You go, what do you mean? You're always paid to preach. Yes, that's right. That's why I'm here. Um, why are you here? I know why I'm here, because I'm paid to be here. Why are you here? Um, uh, uh, to raise some money for our young people that were sending to Romania in October half term, uh, I offered to preach a sermon on the verse of the choice of the highest bidder. The highest bidder has now given me that choice of uh, message, so uh, it will be worth its weight in gold, quite literally, uh, in a fortnight's uh, time. And then the following week, I will uh, fulfill my promise to preach on those verses in Mark that we missed out. I think it was when some of our young people were getting baptized and the 
group of verses at the beginning of the chapter were all about divorce and remarriage, and if you do that, you commit adultery and all of that stuff. Somehow it didn't seem very appropriate to wade into at a young person's baptism. I promised that we'd come back to it. So in, um, in three weeks' time, we'll look at what the Bible, we'll start, Mark as our, our setting off point, we'll look at what uh, we understand the Bible to say about divorce and remarriage and so on and dig into those issues. And by then, you'll be glad that the summer's coming for a bit of relief, okay? And uh, then we'll change pace a little bit. It was only a good sermon last week if you did something about it. Now there's a thought. We're in Mark chapter 16. It's the end of our series, just eight verses. The event that not only changes the whole of history, but the event in some ways that transcends, that's bigger than the whole of history, the event that makes sense of the whole of history, uh, the resurrection of Jesus There's a longer version of Mark chapter 16. You'll see it there in your Bibles if you're using the Bibles in the pew. There's some extra stuff added because someone in their wisdom thought that they could do a bit better than the Holy Spirit and tried to improve on it. And uh, audacious, to say the least. And uh, there's nothing wrong with the extra bit that's written in Mark chapter 16. In fact, uh, the Bible in other places more or less supports everything that's written there. So it's not like it's uh, random and, and untrue and uh, and all of that stuff. There is a, another version. So someone thought that the version that someone wrote wasn't good enough, so they thought they'd improve on it. And that version is even more uh, dislocated from the text. Some of you, if you're using, um, I think, the RSV version, prints it in the English translations. Uh, it's a very liturgical kind of end because they were a little embarrassed about the way Mark finished his book. And that's where we'll end this morning when we get there. So we're going to take the verses as they come down to uh, verse 8. And we the, the clumsiness, the abruptness, the kind of weirdness of it, for me, only seems to add to the power. When has the Bible ever been straightforward? When has the Bible ever made just logical sense? Not at all, because it's alive and powerful and uh, we can get excited about it. So, first one, at the top. Hope you've got it in front of you. If you've got a smartphone, get it out. Let's get it up so that you can see what we're doing as we go. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. It's not our theme for this morning, but you might like just to uh, be reminded again, it's part of the whole redemptive history of women that Mark tracks right through his gospel. It was only the women that were there at the cross. It's only the women now that are going to be there at the tomb. Three cheers for the women. Gosh, that wasn't difficult, was it? Spontaneous outburst. Verse 2, before we get too excited, very early. On the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. Some of you know what it's like to wake up early in the morning and to be overwhelmed with a sense of loss. Some of us know what it's like. That split second when you wake up and you know something's wrong and then suddenly it hits you all over again. Who knows what I'm talking about? You're there in the depths of the pain of all that you've lost. Are these women skipping to the tomb? Not at all. They're dragging their feet behind them. The weight of it all. I don't know what they were imagining. He's been dead three days. The body's beginning to decompose. Everything about it was hopeless. Their their task, quite a gruesome one at best. Faced with the stark reality of everything that they've lost. But look at verse 2 again. Look at the way Mark, as I've said so many times, draws us in. It's the first day of the week. Who who cares what day of the week it is? You will know when you've gone through a period of loss, or perhaps you're going through a difficult season like you've been in hospital, we will say to one another, all the days are the same. It makes no difference what day it is. It could be Sunday, Monday, Friday, Wednesday. It's just awful What's true about the day is the awfulness of it. Who gives a a flying fig where it comes in the week? What does it matter that it's the first day of the week? Unless it's the first day of the week, the first day of something new, the first day of a new season. Unless it was the 
beginnings of something that was about to happen. We know that in biblical terms, seasons and times are super important. We know that when we think about the first day of the week, there is a biblical bias to to, to retrace our steps to the very first day of the very first week when God himself was about to do something utterly transformational. Speaking light into the darkness, creating things out of nothing. It's the first day of the week, not just any day. When we left on the Friday, when we left the story on the Friday, it was all dark. Darkness, it said, covered the land as Jesus was on the cross from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. It was all dark. What do we read here in verse 2? The sun is coming up. Listen to what Mark's saying, that these women, all they can see is the overwhelmingness of their situation. All they can see is the impossibleness of what's before them. But Mark's saying, look, look, it's the first day of the week. It's a new season. It's a new time beginning. And you thought it was all dark, but look, even the sun itself is beginning to rise. The resurrection brings a new beginning. For all those who want a new start, your new start starts right here. For all those who feel it's too difficult, it's too dark, it's too overwhelming, the Spirit whispers into our hearts, you know, this is the first day of the week. This is the first day of a new week. And look, it was all dark, but the sun is beginning to rise. Don't miss the significance of verse 3. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Humanly, this is totally impossible. They can't even get into the tomb, let alone a dead Jesus get himself out. This is a new beginning, not just for all those dark situations, the sense of emotion that seems so overwhelming. This is a new beginning for all the impossible situations, all the moments in our lives when we think there is no way. (laughs) Hallelujah. Not just impossible, but it's going to be God's doing. Because by the time they they round the last corner and they see the tomb for the first time, immediately they can see that the stone has already rolled away. Before they even knew it, before they were even aware of it, God had already done something completely miraculous and it was theirs to discover. Do you know what? In our dark situations and in our hopeless situations, God has already done something miraculous that we only need now to discover. And I I think that's moderately okay. So they turned the last corner. And the stone was rolled away. This miracle before their very eyes. Only to be eclipsed by the miracle of Jesus himself coming back to life. Verse 4. When they looked up, they saw that the stone uh, was... uh, uh, Sorry, hang on a minute. I'm getting way too excited here to be useful to anybody. Um, Okay, verse 4. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Verse 5. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. (laughs) It's like walking through the cemetery at Ipswich and someone in a big white sheet walking towards you, pale white. Uh, To say they were alarmed is an understatement in the biblical uh, narrative. Don't be alarmed. Isn't it brilliant how many times God says, do not be alarmed or do not be afraid? That means two things, doesn't it? It means that disciples should expect from time to time to be afraid. Have you ever been afraid? That's a good discipleship emotion. Okay, Fear is right there in the Gospels, in the whole of the Bible, as a proper godly way to behave. And then it says, do not be afraid. Push through your fear. And we'll come back to that before we get to the end of uh, this morning. Gosh, it's only half past 11. Isn't this fantastic? But some of you are anxious about one o'clock and the football starting. I know. So we're on it. You can get yourselves home for the football. Uh, if you don't want to go to heaven. Uh. <clears throat> so, where are we? Verse 6. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. Oh, sorry, verse 6. Here we are. Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. The resurrection brings a new life. The resurrection is not just a new beginning. 
But the resurrection brings a new life. Jesus was not resuscitated to one day die again. This is really important. This is a whole new paradigm. Something changes here that is forever changed, that simply changes the way things are. You see, if you get ill and you think maybe that you are going to die from the illness, but for some reason you recover and you escape death, you still know that one day you will die. It's simply put off what is inevitably true. If you get through today's troubles, what do you know about troubles in your life? There will be another set of troubles tomorrow. So if I was you, I'd cling on to the troubles that you've already got because you've no idea what tomorrow's will be like. Top tip. You see, if we get through, we, we, know it's only for, we know it's not the real deal. We know it's just a sign. We know it, the way things are is the trouble and we get through it. If we get to the top of this particular mountain, then tomorrow there'll be another mountain. Or more annoyingly, you get to the top of the mountain and realize it's just a plateau and the true summit is still eluding you. If you come out of the particular valley you are in today, there will be another one not too far away. But here, a totally new paradigm. He is alive, never to die again. This is not, I've gone through it, and there'll be some more, and I'll have to go through them. This is, I've gone through it, stop, period. Which is why Jesus said at the end of his life, this is just a pause? No, this is finished. It's done, it's over, this is it. Everything has now changed. Because the resurrection brings a new life. Never, ever, 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 ever to die again. And so we find ourselves in a situation in our lives where we do not think, I've got to get through this, but then there'll be another one coming and another one coming. We go, actually, my feet are on such a solid ground that I have this newness of life that nothing and no one will ever, ever, ever be able to take away from me. Jesus put it like this, no one will ever, ever, ever be able to snatch you out of my hands. It's amazing. It's amazing. If only we believed it just a fraction, it would change our lives completely. You know what I mean by believe, you know, here, not just here. Do you know? It's amazing. The paradigm has totally changed forever here at the empty tomb. This new season, then, has at its rock-solid bottom a new life that will never die. Not something that we will receive one day, but something that is already ours. Eternal life is not something I'll get when I die. It's something that I already have. Something that will take me through even death itself because it's already mine in Christ. I love Mark's brevity. Mark was a bloke, for sure. So, massive build-up through the Gospels, all pointing to Jerusalem, and then Mark just says, and they crucified him. That's all he said, like super short. He's not much better here. And he is risen. Ha! Just like that. Three words that change the entire paradigm of the whole universe. In that sense, Mark loved the creed. And what Mark writes here in recording the history of what happened reflects the doxology, the statements of faith that the early church were using. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, we get a summary of early Christian belief. You will know the words. For what I received from the Lord, I also passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ has died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. That's it. That was their, their testimony, their early statement of faith. Christ has died, he was buried, and now he's risen. Super short, super simple. Uh, amazingly, we've managed to preach on it for over 2,000 years, filling it up with loads of words, but that's it right there. And when you sometimes say to me, um, oh, I've heard you say that before. Well, of course you have. You've made me preach for 20 years on exactly the same thing. Christ has died, Christ is buried. Christ. That's it. That's it. Preaching's easy. It's all you have to say. Because that's all it's really about at the end of the day. And it changes everything. So anything that isn't living, celebrating, embracing, entering into this new life that will never spoil or fade is not part of the gospel of Jesus. Anything that's not about this 
is not embracing the fact that he's died, energized by the reality of the resurrection, and anticipating that he's coming again, is not the gospel of Jesus, but we've got lost around some other things. All this stuff is amazing, and it's ours. We've now just waited longer, probably, than they had to wait. There was no time to wait. There's almost no time to ponder the wonder, to absorb it, before the instruction of verse 7. I mean, they can't begin to take it in, what we've just been talking about, because we can't even begin to take it in. However much we've heard it preached, and we've studied it, and we've read about it, and we've pondered on it, we've meditated on about it, but the, the, the verses just race on. Verse 7, see the place where they laid him. It's almost like, um, you know, in, in the whole brevity of the thing, he's risen, he's not here. See the place where they laid him, in brackets, if you must, but go, but go. Can't hang around. You have to go. If you want to pause for a moment, have a quick look where he was, just to be sure that he died. Fair enough, but don't stay here too long. You have to go. There's an urgency about the language, an urgency about the emotion, the intensity of it. You cannot get absorbed in the rituals and shrines of the resurrection. You have to go. Resurrection is not to be talked about debated about, to be enshrined in places of ritual or religious activity, the resurrection is to be immediately acted upon. Isn't it? Go. The resurrection brings a new direction for our lives. Something has happened that propels us out, always out into the world, out into the places of need, out to the people of the world that God himself died for and loves. The dominant note of the resurrection is not a gathering in, but a sending out. And this is so important. And when Constantine institutionalized the church, 300 years after Jesus, whatever his intention, he totally pulled the rug underneath the idea of movement and the sense that the resurrection was to be acted upon and a cause for people to be sent out. And we're still recovering. It's so important that we understand the direction of movement that the resurrection has created. It's not a gathering around the tomb, around the place of what God has done. It's a sending out to take the reality of what God has done with us into our places. We take church to be the place where Christ is in our midst, not when we gather, but when we go. And so, as you've heard me say so many times, we're called to be the church in the places and with the people where God has put us. That's the calling on our lives. It's not about being the church here, although we need that. It is about being the church, embodying the risen Christ in the places and with the people where God has put us. And that's the change of direction that we are trying to bring about in our lives personally and corporately as a church. So, not everybody's here this morning because some people are out in community. Because a church that only celebrates will eventually die. In our post-Christian culture, that will happen very quickly. A church that only gathers in communities of mission and discipleship, but never gathers to celebrate, will for different reasons equally die. It is those who are brave enough to embrace both that I think find the sweet spot of the kingdom of God that Jesus brought uh, to us. Which is why when the church grew fastest, they were in their homes and they were in the temple courts. And it created a movement that was out. And it was only when we created buildings and professional preachers, I'm sorry about that, I'm part of the problem, not the solution, that the movement out stopped. And we have to recapture it. And the trouble with trying to change direction is it takes a long time, and you will also know, if you're a big ship, and you, a big ship creates a big wake, it's not quite true, but just hold with me now for the purpose of the metaphor. If you try and change direction fairly quickly, what happens to the wake behind you? You end up entering into it, so it's bumpy and rough to change direction. We're in the bumpy and rough attempt to change direction. And, and if, if, if what we want out of 
out of our church community is to gather and to be encouraged for another week and to come back and to be engaged, then, then this gathering becomes increasingly uncomfortable for you because we're trying to change direction. And that's why some people have left. And they've gone, this is, we're not sure we want to be this kind of church because we liked it as it was. I get that. But, but there's stuff in this resurrection, folks, that I can't ignore anymore. And, and you see some stuff and it, it captivates you. And you go, actually, something happened here that they had no, almost no moment even to look where they'd laid him. You know, my instinct would have been, well, let's have a little service here for a moment around where Jesus was laid. Let's meditate here. I'm not saying any of that's wrong, but, but, but there was this urgency to change the direction. You've come to this tomb, but now you've got to go. You've discovered, but now you've got to go. You've understood, now you've got to go. Are you facing out? Are we facing out? It's a, it's a posture, isn't it, about being open and curious. It's a posture to live by. Do you go everywhere in your week as if God has sent you there? Because it makes a difference, doesn't it? On a very simple level, if I believe God has sent me somewhere, it changes the way I behave. If I'm going to Sainsbury's, Ooh, perhaps I'm not allowed to mention a brand, or Tesco's, or Lidl, or, um, no, or Waitrose. Who's annoyed about the free cup of coffee thing in Waitrose? See, it's people like you that they've changed it for, because they, they don't want people like us in Waitrose. Anyway, what was I saying? Oh, if you're sent, so you go to Waitrose to buy your caviar, quinoa caviar, yes. <laughs> so you say, so yes, there you go. Uh, and, and that's what you go and do, and you buy it for the bargain price, because it happened to be in the Waitrose bucket aisle. You elbowed a few people out of the way to get through, and you grabbed it, and you took it to the till, you're really pleased, because you won. Uh, perfect. But if you think that in that simple act of going into Waitrose, you are a representative sent by God into the world, it alters the way you behave, even in those ten minutes. You with me? Who are the people I can touch in the name of Jesus? Who are the people I can show an interest to in the name of Jesus? Where's the checkout person that I can invite into conversation? Changes our whole posture because we understand that it's all about being sent. And I come here to be refreshed, to worship with my brothers and sisters, that I might be energized in the go of the life to which God's called me. And, and there, right there, at the very beginning, have a look at the grave clothes if you like, but go. And of course, there's a new message, but go tell. Go tell. What, what is it? Go, go tell the message. What's the message? The message that is, he is a, alive. The, the message is that a victory has been won. And it picks up those verses that we used to sing um, a song uh, to that come out of the, the book of Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And we used to sing, what was the chorus? Our God reigns. Remember that? You're that old if you remember that. But the, the, uh, what were the beautiful feet that brought good news? It was the runner. You are in your village, you are in your city, and there is a war going on outside. And you know that if your people lose the war, you will be obliterated. You will lose your livelihood, your family, your security, everything. So when you see the runner in the distance, and you know when you see someone walking in the distance, you can tell whether they're happy or sad by their body language. You know, you can, this is you lot coming into church, yeah? But, you know, or there's springness. See, so you can tell, and immediately they see, they know. How beautiful are the feet of the runner that comes and brings good news. It means we're saved. We're rescued. It means a victory has been won and the people are already delighted before they see the runner actually reaches them. The trouble with us as Christians and the church is that the people generally outside don't think we're coming with good news of a great victory. They go, oh no, the Christians are coming. And they keep out the way. Because they're feeling a bit awkward about us and we're feeling a bit awkward about them. And there's not much victory, it's all a bit... And we've created this culture, or, or we haven't, but there is a culture created in our, uh, in our Western, and our UK culture, where the expectation of the people is that anyone bearing the name of Jesus doesn't come with good news of a great victory, but comes with a sense of judgment on the way that they are living. The dominant tone of the church as heard, it isn't true about the church, but the dominant tone of the church as heard by people in the world is that somehow we look down on them because they're not living properly. No, they're not. That's true. But that's not the primary message. The primary message is not of judgment. God will sort that out. primary message for us is that there is news of a great victory. And we need that skip in our step. 
just like I had when I danced with Christopher Robin in Disneyland in Paris. All true. Very embarrassing. People are still living anxiously, like the village settlements of old lived anxiously, awaiting news of the victory. People are living anxious. They're not sure whether there's a victory over their health. They're not sure whether there's a victory over their finances. They're not sure whether there's a victory over their relationships. They're not sure there's a victory over their eternal destiny. People are living anxious. We have the message of the victory. And our feet are beautiful in that regard. We must be so different. Salt and light, Jesus talked about. And, and, and we might not be at a, a kind of cultural level to, to be able to change the dominant impression that people have of the church. But you can at a personal level. Every day you go into Waitrose, you can at a personal level. Every day you go into work, you can at a personal level. Every day in your neighborhood, you can at a personal level. Wake up tomorrow and go, why has God placed us in this house? Why? Because it was the one that you could afford? Maybe, but is that the real reason? Was God limited by your finances? I doubt that. Was God thrown off course because of your decision? I doubt that. There's a bigger purpose as to where you are. Have you got your job just to earn the money to come home and pay your tithe, look after your family, all the stuff that you do with your money? Well, maybe, but is there not a bigger purpose? Is God not bigger than that? What else is going on if we're to be these sent people? dominated by the word go. Gosh, only an hour and ten minutes before kickoff. But you know what? We think it's a modern condition that people suffer with low self-esteem. We think it's a modern plague that people are lacking in self-confidence. I think it's as old as humanity itself. They hid in the garden because they felt naked and ashamed. And so much of our core identity is shaped by our sense of insecurity a sense of lack of confidence. So it might be all great to be talking about going and reaching and changing and transforming, but what you don't understand, Simon, is that I can't do that because inside I don't feel that I amount to that much. And if you knew my story, if you knew what was really true about me, then you would simply agree with me. It's only because you don't know that you think I can do it. Once you find out what I'm really like, you'll know that I can't. Peter's failure was deeply personal and shamefully public. If anyone was out of the game, if anyone was off the team for making a right pig's ear of the whole thing, then it was Peter. But the resurrection brings a new hope. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Go and tell his disciples and, Simon, and whatever your name is, whatever reason you feel like you're on the sidelines, whatever reason you feel like, well, there's all this happening and people are trying all this, but I'm, I'm just on this. I've got nothing to offer. I, I, I'm of no use in this. I don't get where I even fit into this whole thing. The resurrected Jesus comes back and he says, make sure you tell everybody and for goodness sake, make sure you tell Robin, Dan, Jacob, Carrie, Kerry, Sue, Rita, Liz, and so on. Make sure you tell them. Make sure no one, no one, no one ends up living under the lie that somehow they've messed it up and can't be central to God's kingdom purpose in their day and with the people where God's placed them. Amen? Which means every single person in this room has the potential within us to be a multiplying, discipling Christian. So imagine there are ten of us meeting around a home and two more join them to make twelve. But instead of two more joining them, four of them go off and start another one on the basis that all four of them have got every potential in Christ to reproduce what's already within them. Suddenly you've got a movement that's growing exponentially, that's growing so fast no one can control it. That's what happened in the early church. It's what happened in China. It's what happened in certain uh, other uh, moments through the history of the church. When actually the people grasped that within the ordinary people, there was everything they needed to reproduce all that the church needed. And that's why leaders, like me, can be the bottleneck, can be the, the kind of, the, the, uh, the holder. Who do we need? Who do we need? Great. Thanks, Caroline. Uh, and maybe for some of us today, it's just that whisper. It's just the, 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 the name there is not Peter. The name's yours. You with me? You know, the, 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 one, of the, one of the kind of, one of the most painful things sometimes 
is that people feeling that they've got nothing or very little to offer when the rest of us can see they've got so much to offer. Are you with me? And we can see it for everybody else, but struggle to see it for ourselves. And Jesus says, for goodness sake, make sure you tell them, won't you? Make sure you tell them that it doesn't matter how far off the game you think you've become. You're right in the middle of the action and the amazing way that Jesus rehabilitated Peter and he became a powerhouse for the church. Isn't it weird that Peter should preach the first sermon? He makes the biggest mess up and then preaches the best sermon. That's grace right there, but that's kingdom right there. It's the way God works. But go tell his disciples and Peter. So the answer when is now, the answer who is you, including Peter, the answer where comes next, and it's really weird. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. Where were they? Jerusalem. There you will see him, just as he told you, in Galilee. Why Galilee? Surely the truth of the resurrection needs to be celebrated in Jerusalem. That, of course, was the religious capital of the world. Surely the truth of the resurrection needs to go to Rome. That was the global capital then of the world. We're at the center, the epicenter of the Roman Empire. Yes, but that's where it ends, not where it starts. The resurrection brings a new context. They were to go not to the religious capital or the cultural capital or the global capital. They were to go back home. It begins where we are. It begins where we belong. And and this is crucially important for us. If we're to reproduce, we can only reproduce who we are, where we are in the name of Jesus. And one of the ways the enemy distracts us, I think, is by giving us big and audacious dreams, which in themselves are godly, but to keep us focusing on the big audacious dreams and to forget about where it starts. So we'll hear, and it's a laudable dream from people right across the churches in Ipswich, let's win Ipswich for Jesus. Now, who doesn't want to win Ipswich for Jesus? You're not sure? Ambulance about that? Take it or leave it? We're all, every single one of us here would love to see the rising tide of the gospel that there was a significant transformational change in our town. Or we might say, I'm believing God for the re-evangelization of the UK. And that's a, a brilliant goal. When God moves by his spirit, we will see a revival in our country and amazing things will happen. We would all applaud those goals. You with me? But it starts with... You see, we can't talk about God winning Ipswich for Jesus until I've won a couple of neighbors or work colleagues for Jesus. You with me? And we look over there for the big thing that God wants to do and miss the little thing that he's he's put before us. And until we've learned to reproduce at the little level, until we've learned to... uh, You planting, gardening type people, it's weird, I know that people enjoy that, but you do, I like looking at it. And you take a little seed and you replant it, you know you can't get a forest just like that. You've got to do it one little plant at a time. And if all we think about is winning the world for Jesus, but not how can I do something that transforms the lives of the people around me to be the church with the people and in the places where God has already put me, then we do not stand a chance of growing the forest. Are you with me? However laudable and biblical and God-honoring all those dreams are, the enemy distracts us with a big vision and we never actually start, which is why it was Zechariah who said, um, who dares despise the day of... Small things. We don't like small things because we want big things. Big things are better. But you only get big things if you start small. And the gospel is all about starting small. Jesus told a story, didn't he, about a seed. It was the mustard seed. So you're right with me now. And he plant the seed in a massive plant. And Jesus, at the end of his life, he had a, a little smattering of disciples. Very small, almost insignificant. But today, 2,000 years later, a third of the world worshipped Jesus. Small beginnings. Go. Tell Peter. Get him back on the team. And go to Galilee. I haven't got time for my neighbor or my work colleague. I want the gospel to go global. Well, the gospel won't go global until I've got time for my neighbor and my work colleague. There you will see him. Literally, they will see him. It's a theological point as well, of course. It's it's there in Galilee that we discover the presence of Jesus is real. So they're going to see him not standing by the tomb but in Galilee. So many people, even Christians, want to analyze it all. We want to discover that Jesus is alive by examining the empty tomb. 
And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. People like Josh McDowell spent a lot of time examining the evidence of the empty tomb, and he came to faith as a result. He set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus and had a bit of a shock along the way and met Jesus. And there are other people like that, more recently, Lee Strobel out of Willow Creek and so on. So lots of people um, spend good time and energy and are analyzing the data around the resurrection to see how real and credible it is. It's a very important apologetic discipline. I applaud it, but, but the real discovery that Jesus is alive is not found by examining the details around the empty tomb. The real discovery that Jesus is alive is when we go back into the situations where God has placed us and discover that Jesus is already there and at work. And you will know that when you've stepped out to witness to a neighbor, when you've stepped out to love a work colleague, when you've stepped out in and around where God's placed you, you've known his presence in ways perhaps you've never known anywhere else. It is a beautiful thing in the grace of God when we gather here and we sense his presence. You with me? But there is way more presence and way more power to be discovered as we meet him out there. Go and find him in Galilee. Go back to your place, uh, the weird man in white said to them. And that's exactly what they did. It was when the priests in the Old Testament crossing the Jordan, they were desperate for the waters to part. They wanted to see the power of God before they stepped into the river. What did they have to do? They had to step into the river first. As we step out, as we say, yes, I'm in, I'm going to go, I'm fed up of not seeing uh, enough power of Jesus, so I'm going to do more going stuff. There we meet him. We discover he's already gone ahead of us. And it happens in such simple ways. You start having a conversation with someone. We're back in Waitrose now. We've just picked up our caviar and we're going to the checkout. But we're thinking, just buying my caviar is not enough today because I'm a missionary. I'm sent by God. I've got this go posture. So who does God want me to talk to? And you see someone who's struggling. You get alongside them. You help them and so on. And you discover that morning they said, I prayed that someone would help me in Waitrose today. And you were the answer to that prayer. And you discover that the presence of Jesus is already there ahead of you. And that's why you know he's alive. And so you don't need to spend time looking at the grave clothes and seeing where they laid him because you know he's alive because you see him every day. Who was it? That famous quote who said, um, I can't remember the quote now. I can't remember the famous person and I can't remember the quote. So I'm not doing very well. But he said something about, um, uh, uh, we know he's alive because we meet him every day. Who said that? Simon Harris said, we know Jesus is alive, resurrected from the dead because in our ordinary everyday lives, we meet him. And it's that discovery tomorrow morning that Jesus is not dead, not because I can see the grave clothes, but because I know he's alive. And I see him at work in my here and now. Yeah, yeah, come on. We got got 55 minutes before kickoff. We got hours. When Sherry says, can I say something, she means, can I say something? Okay, this is just so amazing that that Simon's saying this about Waitress, because I was like, this is crazy. (laughs) Okay, I was in Waitrose this week, <laughs> and um, I got—I actually got it, got my things, and I walked out the door, and I was coming down through the market area, and I heard two men speaking to each other, and he said, oh, here she comes again, and, and I, I looked, and I, I couldn't see anybody, but ahead of me, I saw a woman uh, punch, just at that moment, punch a man full in the face. I have never, you see it in movies, but she really punched him full on in the face and she was screaming. And the other men, there was other men standing around watching and I could see she had a can of beer in her hand and she was howling. She was howling and screaming and she kind of staggered away. And I, you know, your immediate reaction is, well, (laughs) there's somebody who just punched somebody full force in the face. Like, I don't want to get near her. But I went over to her and I said to her, she was hunched over and she was screaming and howling. And I said to her, are you okay? And she said, no. She said, that man, that man, she said, he raped me. And I was like, I said to her, I said, oh, my dear. And she was trying to go back to attack him. And she said, you don't understand. Because I said, I'm so, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Come on, darling. Come, come with me. And she said, no, no. And she was sort of going, I said, come on, come on. It's not worth it. She said, you don't understand. She said, they, they took my baby. And anybody like you know, 
How is that not the calling of God? How is that not God's heart? And I think it's amazing, isn't it? Like, crazy. Like, I run a group for women whose children have been taken away. And I was just like, like, God's heart. Like, we're, I think what Simon was saying, like, we are his, you know, feet. We are his hands. And we're his heart. His heart. So I was like, when he was saying about waitress, I was like, yeah, I was in waitress this week. And like, and like, who would have thought? And afterwards, I, I started talking to this woman. I said, she wanted to tell me about her daughter. And I said, come with me, come with me. And she, she came away with me. And I, I said, I want to give you a card. I, I had the card, you know, for our group. And, and I hugged her. I, I went and got her something to eat. And, and I hugged her. And she said, you know, it was, I felt, like Simon was saying, like, I felt, like, you know, Jesus talked about, I felt mm. power. I felt love. Mm. And that's God, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And that's God. And so, like, you might think, well, Sherry would do that because Sherry is a bit crazy. (laughs) But actually, that's only happened as I, little by little, take steps, whether it's ministering to somebody, you know, our neighbor, uh, showing kindness, showing love. And then God gives us more audacious Mm -hmm. moments. But, you know, you never know. Like, if I had just walked away, if I had just left her howling and and distressed, she probably would have gone back and had another go at him. And then the police would have been called. And then she would have been arrested. It's like, you just don't know. And I handed her that card. And I, I keep praying for that woman. So I just want to share that. Because I think, yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? It's just amazing. God hearts, God's heart is broken. And so our heart breaks too. But he's sending us out. Go, go, yeah. go. Just go. Oh, yeah. ma'am. Sorry, sorry. Oh, ma'am. Yeah, Thank you, Sherry, very much. The posture of of going. So we've got one last verse now in Mark chapter 16. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What a rubbish ending. Honestly, make it up, Mark. I was just joking. What? Such a, the gospel of goodness, of victory that changes lives to the end of the world and we're left with a bunch of frightened women. Such an anticlimax. What happened? Mark didn't mean to end it like this, did he? Which is why other people have added their own endings. So Mark's made a mistake. It's a rubbish ending. We can do better than him and the Holy Spirit. So they had a go. Uh, and most of us hate rubbish endings. Do you know when you've watched a whole box set of six series and the ending's rubbish? Who feels cheated? Who knows that their lives have been wasted and they will never recover that time? Totally pointless. Designated survivor is a real problem for me now. We are halfway through the second season. I get to watch one a month, so we don't get through it very quickly. But someone has told me there will not be a third season, which means that the story will not end. Can I be bothered spending another five hours, one a month for the next five months, on a story that will not end? Any thoughts about that? But that's the clue right here. The story hasn't ended. Get it? The story that begins in a Palestinian grave is not over. And it works, this literary device, which I'll talk about in just a second, works because the people now reading this gospel in Rome, they know full well that it didn't just end in a cul-de-sac of frightened women who were too scared to say anything because they were now part of the church that had made all its way to Rome. They knew that it hadn't ended like that. And so the vacuum that the story creates draws them in to think about what had just happened. And that's the literary point. I'm sometimes not great at speaking out things that are in my head that I think are obvious. And sometimes that gets me into a bit of trouble with people because they think, well, if it's obvious, say it for goodness sake. But, and I've been looking for someone who agrees with me, and I've now found that the ancient stylist Demetrius agrees with me. He was 200 years before Christ. So over 2,200 years, there are two of us that believe this stuff. And I'm one of them, right here, alive to tell the tale. And this is what he said. It's brilliant. And I I, I leapt when I read it because it's like, someone understands me. Yes! He says, some things seem to be more significant when not expressed. And those omissions will make an expression more forcible. This is just genius. I couldn't have made it up. I was so excited when I discovered this. 
In other words, you create a vacuum of words because it forces the listener to fill in the vacuum. And that's what, exactly what Mark is doing here. Of course the women didn't stay like that. Of course they went and told because they were reading this in a church full of people that were now meeting the risen Jesus in their lives every day. At the very basic level, we might have added to the end of verse 8, verse 9, and the rest is history, dot, dot, dot. At a deeper level though, these bewildered, fearful, frightened women resonated with the audience that were reading about the story of Jesus because they were being persecuted, a very vicious persecution against the Christians and they are now feeling fearful and bewildered and frightened and they read this story of these women who are fearful, bewildered and frightened who must have pushed through their fear and their bewilderment and their frightenedness otherwise they wouldn't be Christians 30 years later. Are you with me? So they knew that they pushed through that. So it became an encouragement to them in their bewilderment and in their fear to push through. And that's the truth for us. Mark leaves it hanging so that we're drawn in. Will we be those for all our fear and for all our bewilderment that go, yes, in all my weakness, in all my fear, I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and I'm going to do this because Jesus is alive. And so the resurrection brings a renewed calling. And it's no surprise, really, because you remember how Mark began his gospel, didn't you? He begins it in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, which you knew, which says the beginning of the good news about Jesus. So he's already saying this is only the story about the beginning. Why? Because the story has not ended yet. You're part of the story. You're on the team. You're part of this great movement that's changing the world. We have this treasure and jars of clay. Hey, we're bewildered and we're fearful and we're anxious and we haven't got a clue what we're doing. But we've heard Jesus say go. And do you know there's something about that reality that I can't unsee? Do you know when you see stuff and you hear stuff, I can't, can't, can't unsee that. And, and there in Galilee, whatever our Galilee is, we will see him. We will see him. Waitrose, we'll see him because he's there. Because he's there. And so as I see these women who are totally, totally sidestepped by this but this new paradigm that suddenly emerged, they can't even get their heads around it. No wonder they're bewildered and frightened. Yet they gather themselves and they begin to tell because they've met him and they've seen that he's alive. I'm quite tired now. Father, would you help us? Father, would you help me? Would you help me? Would you help us to change the direction of our lives? This incredibly weird ending, the greatest story ever told ends like this in Mark's Gospel because it is not over. Because I get by the Holy Spirit to write the next part of the story where you've placed me. It's not a different story. It's the same story. It's his story. It's the history. And I'm part of it. can't imagine anything greater to give my life to than to be part of the story of what God is doing. And for all of us, we can't imagine anything greater than to give our lives to this Jesus who's alive and given us a life that will never fade or spoil or pass away. Let's stand and open up our hearts to him as we sing.